This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Thank you for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Jock. Pleasure, no problem. I'd like to start, you're probably most well known for, for two main things in Scottish football. One, being a broadcaster in the game and obviously having worked at Celtic as general manager, but a lot of people are probably curious, what are you up to now? Well, I'm retired now because I'm old, um, but uh, my main job was uh, solicitor, private practice, and I retired from that in um, 2016. So apart from that, since then, I've been working on a lot of charitable things and some consultancy work and a bit of broadcasting and playing a lot of golf. (laughs) In terms of your time growing up, you've got two brothers and one of them is very well known, the former Scotland manager, Craig Brown. Another one's respectable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to ask about Jock the footballer. What What was your position growing up? What was your ability like? Um, well, not good enough. Obviously, uh, I was I played centre back when I was trying to be a player, um, and uh, I played endlessly at school, and I played in the, for Hamilton Amateurs, who were the sort of unofficial Hamilton boys team. Played in that too, um, and uh, got some representative honours, young levels. Um, had the chance to go pro and um, turned it down because I knew I wasn't good enough and I also had the chance at that time to go to Cambridge University so I had to weigh up which one to, to pursue I could have gone to Glasgow University and, and gone and played football professionally or gone to Cambridge and I, but I couldn't play professionally uh, and with sensible advice from my brother Craig uh, told me the nicest possible way I wasn't good enough uh, he said, you must go to Cambridge. So I went to Cambridge. I played there. Uh, good stand. Uh, good amateur. Very good amateur standard. And I played there all the time I was there. Um, so I was a, a, a decent amateur. In terms of growing up, who were your footballing heroes growing up? Well, the first one I remember was a, a, a guy called Graham Leggett, who played for Aberdeen. Um, and the reason for that probably was because uh, my father was uh, in charge of the PE school at Jordan Hill and Graham Leggett was a student there um, so I knew him slightly and then he, he was playing for Aberdeen professionally um, and he started to become very very effective and scored a lot of goals and played for Scotland and whatever so he was the first one but the, 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 the best Scottish player in my time without shadow doubt was Dennis Law um, he, was, he was the one that you would kill to go and see, you know, you would do anything to go and watch him play if he was in striking distance. Um, and he was he was the main one for me. You mentioned, obviously, through Craig's advice that you went <laughs> to study at Cambridge. What was it you went to study down there? Law. Law. Mm-hmm. I there, yeah. 
and obviously you studied law at Cambridge and from there obviously you, you get a route into broadcasting. How did that all come about considering you went down to study law? Nothing to do with that at all. Again, that was that was connected with the fact that, uh, again, I go back to my father being at Jordan Hill at the PE College. One of the students at the PE College was Archie McPherson uh, and he played in the college team which I used to go and watch. I used to, as a boy, 10, 11, 12, you know, play for school in the morning and then go and watch them in the afternoon because they had a wonderful gym at Jordan Hill, which was state-of-the-art stuff. And I could go there and, and kick a ball in the gym until the game kicked off, then watch the game and, and go home with my father. And I actually played in the team. And I got to know a lot of the players because there was a wee boy that was turning up. Uh, and I kept bumping into him. And I met him at a game, actually. He was commentating at, I was at a third park, and at Mullows, at Murden Cup tie, 1977 probably. Fergie was a manager of St Mullen. Um, and I met him there, um, and he said, oh, what are you up to, what are you doing? And he said, well, radio's expanding coverage as of next season. They're, they're, they're putting a man into every ground, and they're taking voice inserts from every ground as of somebody fancy it. I said, that sounds great, I quite like that, aye. He uh, said, I'll, I'll pass it on to the producer. And he did, and the producer contacted me and asked me if I wanted to go to it. And in 1977, I went in to do voice reports. And uh, while I was doing that, he, the producer again said to me, do you fancy trying commentary? And I tried, they did a mirror on commentary for him. Um, and he seemed to quite like that and pushed me, and that was me. As you say, you were, you were right into broadcasting through an interesting route, as you've mentioned there. What are the most memorable games you've worked on throughout the years? Oh, well, um, the first one, the first major one probably um, would have been, the first one I did actually abroad for television was Sweden against Scotland in Stockholm, a World Cup qualifier, when Gordon Strachan scored the only goal of the game, 1-1-0, one, one, and we remember we qualified for the EHU World Cup, so we went to the World Cup finals in too. Um, which was great, although it didn't do very well, but I mean, it was still a great experience. Uh, but then a year later, one of the big games was Aberdeen Real Madrid in the Cup Winners Cup final. That was, that was terrific. That was, that was a real big thing. But I've done it in Scotland too, at Wembley, and, you know, and, and, and that's always got, uh, uh, something about it. I've done the more than one there, and uh, that's, that's pretty huge. Uh, and the World Cup finals, been in Mexico, been in Spain, Italy, uh, all over the place. Um, so, in every game to qualify, we beat France 2-0, I remember, and to get to Italy. We beat France at Hamden on a soaking wet night, and Morris Johnson scored twice. And that was the night that Morris Stewart listened to the whole match live from Rio de Janeiro, where he was doing a gig. And he came on to ask if he could listen in. He couldn't get any other way to get the game. He listened to the whole game the TV commentary out there on the phone. Um, I remember that, but we beat them 2-0 that night. It was a phenomenal night, that, because it looked then as if we were going to qualify. In terms of, of broadcasting and commentary, in particular, I've spoken recently to, to Derek Gray and, and, and Rory Hamilton, mm. and they talked about the research that was into football mm. broadcasting. Absolutely. Everybody's got a different style, as both of those have mentioned. Um, what was your style for research? Well, things have changed dramatically in that sense because uh, I used to attend matches with a hold-all of books and notes and things because I kept everything manually. So every time around the games was played in the Premier League or whatever, 
I had I recorded everything that happened in every game at that time, and I kept team lists of all that stuff, which I made by hand constantly. So I knew who the goal scorers were, how many each player had scored, how many performances, how many appearances they'd had, how many games they'd missed when they'd been injured, how many penalties missed or taken and scored. Um, and I kept that manually um, all the first for the first 20 years, really, uh, of doing it. Um, and then before the match, obviously, you know they're going to do the match, so you then extract from all that history and background a big sheet of stuff that you... So you actually mark up and, and prepare to take with you at the game uh, and uh, it's a lot of prep now nowadays it's so much easier you just go online and get it all um, and uh, it's another thing of course uh, they might not have told you but um, if you're doing it for Skype or BT Sport or whatever they have researchers that feed you they give you piles of information one or two outstanding guys that work there, a guy called Dave Gillen that works at Sky, I worked at Sky when I was there, was just fantastic at the stuff he gave you uh, before a match. It was so much, we got it early because you had to study it, and there's a lot <laughs> of it. Um, so when you hear a really good, a really good stat come over a commentary nowadays, there's a fair chance that it was provided by a researcher rather than by the commentator. Something I've asked the commentators I've spoken to, and I'm interested to hear your opinion is, how difficult is it when you're commentating on a drab nil-nil game to, to keep yourself motivated to get through the broadcast? No, it ain't be difficult. No, it's all difficult. No, you're, you're, you're given a performance, really. You know, you've got a, 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 a duty to, to, to make the best of what's there. And, you've got a, 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 and there are bigger challenges from and a bad game. is a bigger challenge. But your job, the only job of a TV commentator, in my opinion, is to enhance the understanding of the pictures. That's what he's there to do, to enhance the understanding of the pictures. And whether the game is bad, good, and different, you still have that duty and you still have that concentration. You've still got to play your mind that way. Um, so I don't find it difficult. I do detect, and, I, and I've had it myself, you know, if you do a live broadcast for 70 minutes, you begin to tire. Play a player, you begin to tire. And that's when a good producer's in your ear, giving you a kick, you know. But, but there's no difficulty in, it doesn't matter how bad the game is, you've still got a job to do. In terms of your time commentating, what was your one of your favourite grounds to commentate on live football at? Oh, well, there's a number of these and I've been very fortunate because I've, I've been at, I, mean, I tell you, West Valley and, and Dortmund's hard to beat. I mean, it's an incredible place. It's absolutely amazing. 81,000 capacity every game, virtually. Um, and that, that was terrific. Uh, I've, I've done the new camp and I've been at Bernabeu. I've um, uh, been on San Siro. Uh, every one of these names, you know, you, you, you know there's something special about yep. the whole environment when you're in these places. Um, so, but, and they, but they vary massively in the kind of um, facilities you have. And you know, sometimes you could be a, I mean, the new camp's actually not that fantastic facility-wise for what you do. Yeah, it's, it's improved recently, but I mean, it, when I first went there, it wasn't that particularly special in terms of facilities, but there was an atmosphere and an aura about the place. It was, that does, does affect you. Old Trafford, I mean, Celtic Park's hard to beat, and Celtic Park's fantastic. Celtic Park matches anywhere I've been in the world, but a terrific atmosphere. In terms of 
and I don't want to alienate or offend any fans by asking this question or for you to do that. Mm-hmm. See, in terms of the worst ground, and I don't mean necessarily the worst ground in terms of the club or whatever, I just mean in terms of, for yourself, travel and difficulty getting there. Well, gee, I mean, I've been in Bucharest and I've been in Sofia and I've been in Kiev. and uh, They weren't too funny. I've come here from a single-decker bus beside <laughs> a pitch in Iceland, in Reykjavik. <laughs> That wasn't a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, again, you don't really care about that too much. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, really. Getting, getting to places like these and staying in places, some horrible places, and some where they weren't good. Before the wall came down, I was travelling before the wall came down. Yeah. So you're going to Eastern Europe and going through all sorts of hoops to get in, even. And I've been held up at gunpoint in Moscow and things like that by security men because I couldn't get through the metal detector. You know, and it's that that's a little bit unpleasant, but it's also an experience and it experiences you wouldn't miss really, especially when you look back on them and you get out of it and you get home, you know. In terms of commentating, who was one who were your favourite guys to work alongside on co commentary? On co commentary, I'm quite forced. I mean well, it's hard to say that for this reason. There's some guys you love, you know, they're really smashing guys and you become uh, a little bit, you, you don't really assess them in, t- in terms of co- how good they are at co-commentating. I, I mean, it's fair to say, it's fair to say that Jock Wallace was not a great co-commentator, but I loved the man, I loved working with him. Uh, and he, but I couldn't say, you know, in terms of co-commentary, he was, he was one of the shining lights. I worked with Dennis Law too, and I would say the same with Dennis. I loved Dennis to death, he was a man, and I loved him as a player. Um, I, I, I think he found co-commentary quite difficult, um, fair enough. Other guys that were terrific, Ray Wilkins was great, Trevor Francis was great, um, uh, Terry Butcher was good, globally uh, to, to work with. These, all these guys were great to work with and, and you're conditioned by that. Another one that, that, that will shock you in terms of uh, being interesting and, and good fun to work with was Gary Lineker. The Gary Lineker's first two broadcasts as co-commentator were done with me at Italian Football on Sky uh, and uh, he was at the time the captain of England he was just beginning to get towards retirement and he, he wanted to get into media and Sky gave him a, a, a chance to do some co-commentary in Italian football um, and, and the first two that he sat beside me doing um, and he was so enthusiastic and so well prepared uh, done all his homework, he cared deeply, he wanted a post-mortem after it um, and you can only admire and respect that. In terms of the guys you've worked with, as a football fan yourself, did you ever obviously quiz them in the career they had and try and get some of the stories out of them as well? Uh, but you, don't, you don't tend to do that, you learn not to do that, I mean, it's, it's a bit unfair, you know, it's, it, sometimes they, they want to tell you stories and that's fantastic. Uh, especially if you travelled with them, say you're going to do a game abroad and you're on the flight together. I mean, Ian St John, I should have mentioned before, Ian St John was a great, great co-commentator, terrific. I worked with him a lot early on and uh, he was super and he had story upon story about Chankley and Liverpool and all that. That was great. Um, but you don't, you tend not to probe guys like that, you know. I mean, I've been in company of a lot of big names in the world of football and I find if you just get in a conversation, they'll tell you what they want to tell you. And usually it's, it's very, very interesting. 
we talked there about the broadcasting. You've had a a long broadcasting career, and as you say, you're still doing bits and pieces mm -hmm. of broadcasting yep. now, which mm -hmm. is great to see. Mm -hmm. I'd like to move on to your spell in Celtic Park under mm -hmm. Fergus McCann's regime. Obviously, Fergus McCann takes over and rescues Celtic at a time of real financial trouble. Did you expect any sort of role under Fergus? Did you know him previously before no. he came in at Celtic? No, 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 not at all. No, I was, I was, my, I wanted went there. I was, I had a, a good friend of mine um, phoned me one day and said, uh, "Have you seen the job description for Celtic's general manager?" I said, "No." I'll send it to you. Why? <laughs> no, you're interested. You're interested. He says, "I want you when you get it, give me a phone back." So I got this thing around, I'll phone him back, and he says, "Who do you think could do that?" I says, "Reading that, I have no idea who could do that. There's far too much in that for any individual to do." He says, "I know somebody could do it. You could do it." That's Don't be silly. Anyway, he pressed me four times, trying to get. Him get me to allow him to contact Celtic, and only because I was fed up getting the calls. Because I thought there's not the slightest possibility of that happening. Uh, eventually, said to him, "Look, if you want, if you know what, you can contact him if you want." And he did, and then suddenly I get a call asking me if I'd be a headhunter in, in Edinburgh, and I went and meet the headhunter in Edinburgh. Uh, quite a long session with him, um, which was very interesting. Quite, I, was, I did it out of interest. I still didn't think for a minute it was a possibility. And then uh, after that, I got a call the day after saying uh, I'd like to meet Fergus McCann. I met Fergus the first time. When you met Fergus for the first time, what was he like? And was he clear right away he wanted you on board? No, not at all. Well, he was. He was still hunting. He was. I was. I was. I was being interviewed. I wasn't. No, it wasn't a. There's no friendship thing. It was, it was business, um, and but I liked him, because I liked his directness, um, and it was a complete contrast to how he'd been portrayed in the media, uh, and that fascinated me too. Just how different he was, from all that. So we had a long session, um, and uh, uh, got on well, I think. Well, obviously we did, and then uh, I again get a call asking me to go to. To meet the PLC board on a Saturday afternoon in Edinburgh, um, at a lawyer's office, uh, and I went there and met the, the PLC board and spent a good long time with them too. And Fergus was there, but didn't say very much. Everyone else was the chairman and all the other folk were, uh, and I quite enjoyed the the exercise. Um, still, not. Anyway, thinking the likelihood was great. Although I, I got a hint when I was with Fergus that we got on well. And then uh, very shortly after that, in fact, on the Monday, I met him on Saturday afternoon, on the Monday I got a phone call uh, saying I want to talk terms. You take the role on as um, general manager, and I'm interested to ask you, it's a very broad question, um, granted. What is, describe the role of general manager to those who may not have totally understood it at the time. Well, the role of general manager, I mean, it was, it was about a three-page job description, I think. Um, but fundamentally, you're in charge of all football operations. Uh, you're effectively the boss to head coach. 
Um, but you have no part to play in the technical aspects of the football. So you don't have any say in uh, player recruitment, uh, subject to some, certain things, but fundamentally an identification didn't have a part to play in that. But you, had, but you were responsible for the scouting system, but you didn't pick the players. Yeah. Uh, and you had nothing to say about uh, team selection or team tactics or any of that kind. That was entirely the, the confine of the head coach. But in every other way, you're in charge. So you ran you know, everything you do. You the, the, the physiotherapy, the sports science, the, the youth the academy, the, the, all of that. You were overall charge of all aspects of that. And you were to appoint people to work in these areas and so forth. And they were answerable to you. And then, then of course, the, the big task was, I've got to report all relevant matters to the board. Uh, the board laid out a budget. I had to work on a budget, work within a budget. Um, I had to create a strategy for a three-year period about how the club would go forward. Uh, and uh, it was a very involved job. One of the things about it that, that uh, I remember being asked by Fergus about head coach. When I, while I was still talking to him, who would you have for head coach? I said, I want to get back. The guy you just sacked. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, Tommy Burns. Get Tommy Burns back. Because if Tommy Burns had been head coach in a system that you're about to put in place, he'd been first class. The problem you had with Tommy Burns was you're asking him to do things that he couldn't do. I mean, this, the job description of the general manager, if you look at all these things, so how could you possibly expect Tommy to do that? But in terms of putting a team out, picking a team, coaching a team, identifying players, I don't look any better than Tommy Burns. <laughs> I'll take Tommy Burns back in a minute, along with Billy Starr. I'm going to be delighted to see you turn back. And I said, that could make that work because if I buffer them from you and the board and get, let them do the technical stuff and the coaching and the team selection and all that um, and talk to me and I'll talk to you and I'll buffer it and you, it'll be fine. Uh, well, I, can't do that. I can't do that, I can't do that. I saw, I tell you, I wish you could and wish you would. That was why we're still talking about me getting the job. You mentioned, obviously, there, your opinion on Tommy and Billy Stark, mm. and you think they could have worked within the newly structure oh, yeah. um, that was put in place between yourself and the board. Mm. One of the first big moments of your reign was the appointment of Vim Janssen, and mm. before Wim was, was unveiled, there was lots of speculation over <laughs> who was going to get the job, and it was kept very under wraps until the unveiling, basically until the last moment. What, what, what was behind the secrecy of the appointment? Um, the secret of the appointment is, is out of respect for all those that are involved. I mean, it, it was it, another thing, one of my big problems that turned out at Celtic was one of the major tasks I was given was to stop the leaks because it leaked like a sieve. You were reading stuff in the tabloids before board members knew. It leaked like mad. Uh, and that was a big topic of discussion when I was talking to them, all of them, uh, in the lead up to it. And they. Uh, they said to me, hey, if you come and do this job, we would expect you to stop all these leaks. Do you think you can do that? And I said, well, yeah, but it would be a massive personal cost, but I can do it. I can do it. But it will be a massive personal cost. Well, I thought, well, why would that be? I said, because if I am successful, I'll be targeted. That's inevitable. Um, because the press will soon realise what's changed and who's changed it, um, and uh, the knives will be out. Um, especially when the job description also said that I had to be 
the face in front of the media in all the times except pre- and post-match press conferences, which the head coach had to do. But I had also to do it with him. And every other occasion, the head coach was not available for any press stuff. And I had to do any press conferences that were involved. And I told Fergus at the time, that won't work for more than two years. That's got a two-year lifespan. Because they must get access to the guy that picks the team. If they don't get access to the guy that picks the team, the guy who they're getting access to will get slaughtered. Me. Exactly how it turned out. And the, the, the last thing that nearly stopped me taking the job was uh, I tried to persuade him to change that. Um, and uh, he wouldn't hear of it. He wouldn't entertain it. Uh, and at my last, when I was offered it, and I then had to stop and think, because I knew, I'm going to take this or not. And I then thought, that part of it will kill me. That's an absolute guarantee. But I tell him, once I'm in, I'll be able to change his mind. Once I'm in the door, I'll persuade him. Um, and it was on that basis that I took it, on the basis I thought I could change his mind quickly about that. It was the only part of the job description I didn't like. Everything else was fine. But that part I knew was going to be a real problem for me. Um, and I thought, I'll get him to change it. Because the first couple of volleys of abuse I get, I can have another conversation with him and see if we can do that. But I, I should have known better. There's no chance to change his mind. And I didn't <laughs> change his mind. And uh, I was right about the two-year limit. Um, and uh, it was, that was the reason why I had to go, really, was because it became impossible to, to function in a, in a media climate like that. In terms of, as we t- said there, about them being appointed, there was even speculation on the morning that he was going to be unveiled, that it was going to be a completely different manager. Did the sort of guessing culture of the media at that time around the Celtic manager, did that frustrate you in any way? I can't say it frustrated me. I just, I just thought, it was, I thought it was silly, really. I mean, I thought it was nuts. We, it, it was made quite clear there would be no, there'd be nothing given until the, the guy's announced. Now, don't get me wrong, that is not the right way to do it. I thought it was at the time. The club insisted it was the way it was to happen. Um, and uh, it was, I learned better. If you remember, Bill Janssen's appointed. And the Sun headline was, the second worst thing to hit Hiroshima was Bill Janssen. They hadn't started that thing. It's a World Cup winner, by the way. It's a World Cup winner. I mean, with a pedigree, you what's wrong with this? He'd gone to Japan to work, hadn't gone great. Hundreds of reasons for that, not to blame him. Um, and he was the second worst thing ever because they didn't know anything about him and they didn't even recognise him when he sat between Fergus and me in that press conference. They didn't even know who he was. And that was the that was a backlash, which, do you know, he got hammered for that. And he was ridiculed at the time. We knew it would happen that way because that's why we got a Johan Cruyff endorsement and things like that to try and package it a bit better. But it was all about not knowing. But the real lesson was learned a year later when I brought in Joe Bengloss. Uh, and I, I, I did say to Fergus, we need to change the way of doing this because we have to leak out who it's going to be a little bit in advance because in doing that, what happens is 
the press build up the guy they think it's going to be. And then they can say, we were right, we told you it was going to be. And the reason I'm saying that is because, I don't know if you remember, you're too young to remember, but Gerard Houllier was the guy they all thought was going to come in. Yep. Now, don't get me wrong, Gerard Houllier, I went to see in France, in Paris, I went to meet him in Paris with a view. And I met him first up, uh, and he said immediately, look, I'm going to back, just don't go anywhere. He said, I'm going to show you my contract with Liverpool. <laughs> he showed me the contract he had with Liverpool that it was, that was about to be announced at the World Cup, just after the World Cup. Um, he said, so I'm not a candidate, I'm, I'm going to Liverpool. He showed me the contract, and I saw the contract, I saw the money, I thought, I'm going to Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's a lovely guy, smashing guy. Uh, but I was seen in France with him. Somebody twigged that. So for two weeks, the Scottish press started off by saying Hulley was a dumpling because he had lost a game to Yugoslavia to prevent France qualifying for the World Cup or something like that, one of the World Cups before that. But then they looked further into his background and realised he's actually very good. <laughs> and they built him up and he was a star. But then he wasn't coming. So anybody else that was coming, if they didn't know about him, was going to be an idiot. So... Once again, two twice in a row we produced managers with nobody knowing until the press conference who it was going to be. Now, the board thought that was fantastic. Fergus thought it was brilliant. Uh, they were packing, packing my bag for being able to keep that under wraps and do all that stuff. And I'm saying, oh, we made a mistake. And then we made a mistake. We should have leaked it out. Because by the time we announced the one that's leaked out, they made him a good guy. Absolutely. But but you you bring in one from outer field, <laughs> and they bring we bring in Bengloss, who's the finest man I've ever met in my life of any kind anywhere. You bring in Bengloss, and they start attacking his English. I remember saying to the press at one time, I said, "His English, his English is a bit broken." I said, "Well, I tell you what, why don't you speak to him one of the other seven languages he speaks? He speaks, he spoke eight languages, and he spoke English perfectly well, and he spoke seven hours." Perfectly well. I've experienced the four of them in one trip. Fantastic. And they made him into an old dodderer, you know, who can he speak English properly? We're ridiculous. But if we leaked them first, they put packaged differently. Jansen comes in, obviously you mentioned there Johan Cruyff endorsement, World Cup winner, he had a he had a pedigree in football. But obviously one of the challenges when, when Vim comes in is you've got the Paolo De Canio saga. You've went on record before as saying it was impossible for him to stay at Celtic at the time. Was he really tough to deal with in that regard? No, it was impossible. <laughs> no, completely impossible. Just, just incredible guy. I mean, just I only had one conversation with him. One conversation, and I asked him some questions. But he was telling me that he wasn't going to Holland to train. Um, that's what I mean, you're not going to Holland to train. Teams going to Holland to train. Pre-training camp, pre-season training camp. No, 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 no. I better, I, I better train here in Glasgow. I'm better at training in Glasgow. I said, wait a minute, can I ask you a question then? If Jackie Mike and and Darren Jackson say they think they'll train in Portobello Beach, and if Alan Stubbs decides he likes Troon, <laughs> is that... Seem reasonable, you just go train where they like. Is that, is that how you think a professional football club works? You know? 
I don't understand. <laughs> Every time I hark with I don't understand. Um, oh, it's just impossible. And, and he's also surrounded by people that made it even more impossible. He obviously leaves and George Cadet also leaves now. Different character altogether. I, I was about to say no, that. Different character. You described the canny on the record before as impossible to deal with, but you did say you thought there was a chance that Cadet could oh, stay. Oh, no, I like George Cadet. George Cadet's a good guy. Nice guy. He had, he had demons, but he's a nice guy. Good guy. Liked him. Um, and uh, I thought I'd sign him. We went out to, went out to Portugal to sign him. Uh, got him a new contract. Uh, agreed, agreed a new contract. A new four-year contract they were in Portugal. And I took with me Club Doc, a great man called Jack Mohern at the time. Um, the two of them still very friendly, happy to say. Jack was a great confidant of, Jack, of George. That's why he came, because George loved him. Um, and... Uh, so I said to Jack, when you come with me, because I don't know him, you do. Uh, I went out to Portugal, he entertained us beautifully at his house. Um, we agreed a deal. Um, and we left for the airport, Cockahoop, and he was coming back in a four-year deal. And uh, Jack was, particularly Cockahoop, and I'm saying to Jack, Jack, I'm still uneasy. I'm not happy yet. I'm not, I'm not happy. Tell your lands and signs a new contract. I'm not happy. Uh, and we landed in Glasgow and I came off the flight and got on my phone. Three messages from George. Um, and last one he's in tears. Saying he can't come. Uh, he couldn't do it. Um, and it, it was his wife who stopped him. Apparently she'd said, if you go back there, to get divorced. <laughs> um, uh, she was gorgeous right enough, but... Um, I, the reason I was uncomfortable was because we, we, he looked after us beautifully at his house, so we had a good whole afternoon, early evening, and he made us lunch, and he was, couldn't have been nicer. Uh, and this beautiful lady was in the bikini, and this woman pulled outside never came in. Didn't come in with us. Mm. And I left with Jack, I said, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with that. That doesn't work. I mean, that's not normal. Most wives that have been in want to know who... Their husband was talking to and meet them and whatever. Didn't show and you know, so didn't get, he didn't come back and at the end I was very sad about that because I, I think last night I she but some thought, isn't it? No, absolutely. And I must say, I think you look back and you think the Canios leaving, Cadet leaving as well. Rangers had just won nine in a row. Did you seriously think after those two players leaving that Celtic could stop ten in a row realistically? Yes, if we recruited well. I had to recruit well, and I knew we had a budget to recruit. If we recruited well, we would, we would, we had a chance, definitely. In terms of that season to, to stop the 10, describe that season from your point of view in terms of what you had to do behind the scenes, and how did you feel as that season progressed? Well, as far as I was concerned, it was utterly all-important. No, nothing more important than stopping 10. Uh, and whatever it took to stop 10, I was really more prepared to do well um, and that included that included a very difficult spell at the end of the season of, of appeasement of the Jansen McLeod cell in order to make sure we won the league I mean everything was geared to that um, and I did things and uh, I, I didn't do things that I would otherwise have done and would have been correct to do uh, but might have jeopardised that possibility and I wasn't prepared to do that. Um, and I was a wee bit at odds with Ferguson that because he, he wanted me to do certain things. 
I resisted because I said, no, that, that could damage the chances. We have to stop with 10 in a row. Uh, and so it, it, was, it, was, it was a huge factor the whole season. I mean, it was, nothing was more important than that. When 10 in a row was stopped, how, how did not only, obviously we know the fans were absolutely jubilant, the management team, the players, but for you, as you say, going into that season, mm-hmm. having the role that you had, saying that you knew recruitment was all important, were you caught up in the moment of celebrating or for you was it just a complete sigh of relief? Uh, a sigh of relief, but I would say principally I'd be there was overjoyed as well. But uh, uh, but at the same time I knew that my problems were just starting. Cause I knew I knew as was leaving. Uh, I knew he was going. And I knew in the event I was winning the league and him going, I'm going to get slaughtered. My brother had said to me, uh, better for you to lose the league, for you personally to lose the league. What do you care about? I've killed him in the league. It's nothing to do. He says, no, no. He says, if you win the league, uh, and the answer, if I, I, I confide in him, the answer was going. Um, if you win the league, he goes, you'll get battered. You know. I said, well, I need to get battered because we've got to win the league. I don't care about getting battered. I'll take, I'll take getting battered <laughs> as long as I win the league. Um, and that's what happened effectively because he, he, he resigned on the Tuesday after, Monday to Tuesday after, the month Saturday winning the league. Um, but we knew he was going. We knew he was going for months. In terms of knowing that he was going, there's always been speculation that you and Jansen didn't see eye to eye. Is that true in particular? Uh, it's not. It's too simple. Um, uh, I've no, no beef with Jansen at all. I've not got a bad word to say about him as a human being. I, I liked him very much. I think he's a good football man too. And I, think he, I think he did a good job. Um, the, 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 my, the problem with them and me, between him and me, was not any, directly him and me. It was the fact that he was under the spell, under the influence of a third party. And the third party was seriously negative as far as I was concerned. And, and that caused a big problem. And it particularly caused because I actually recruited the guy that, that was in that position. Um, and uh, so it was my fault, basically. I recruited somebody that then became, uh, in my perception, a bad influence on Bim Janssen. So Bim Janssen was persuaded, uh, when, they, when, they, when the chips were getting down, it was getting really, really tight towards the end of March, March of the season. He started to breach contract terms in terms of press interviews. Uh, and I know, I think I know, how that happened uh, but it was a complete breach of his, his contract uh, and of course I'm under pressure from Fergus to deal with the breach of contract and deal with that uh, and at the same time saying and, and doing what I need to do it'll jeopardise 10 out of 10 in a row stopping so I'm not prepared to do what I need to do so there was a very difficult impasse at that point In terms of when being in charge, obviously, Murdo McLeod alongside him, who, from the supporters' point of view, was seen as a Celtic-minded person. Um, did he, do you feel that he, did he help win through that season, or was it maybe not what fans thought it was? No, it certainly wasn't what fans thought it was. I've got a, I mean, I've been, I've written a book about it, and I've, mentioned, I've said quite clearly what I think about McLeod, which is not very positive. Uh, and I hired him, I appointed him. Um, Murdoch was a very good coach, first class coach, first class coach, no doubt about that, no doubt at all about that. 
Um, and it's a, a massive regret of mine. Uh, one that I brought him in, uh, but two that such a great coach wasn't able really to get what we're trying to do and fit into it. Um, and that, that was quite sad for me. You mentioned obviously that it was clear that one was planning to leave Celtic and that was well known for, for many months. So when did you first consider the fact that you needed to recruit a new manager and who did you consider? Well, I, I, I had no doubt about having to find a new manager and uh, I asked for authority to make moves on that. Um, January, February, March, during that period, leading up to, I knew the summer was going to be, it was a World Cup summer too, I knew that was going to be, throw us all into disarray. Uh, and uh, I, and, and Fergus was, knew that was right, but he said, look, we can't really be seen to do anything. Again, we're still talking about rocking the boat, 10 in a row, you know, if we're seen to be talking to anybody, uh, okay, we do it quietly and secretively and all that, but somebody sees you in the wrong place, talk to somebody at the wrong time, um, we we could be in trouble. Um, uh, all I was I was I was authorized to make some phone calls and I did. Um, but I was not prepared to be seen meeting anybody or going anywhere that, that would attract like, any attention to it. Um, and. Uh, I, 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 with hindsight, is that right or wrong? Well, in fact, we, we missed the candidate I wanted uh, because of that. Because we got, because he he, he get tied up elsewhere. The guy we really keen to get, who's in my book, Mister Z, and <laughs> I will never reveal his identity to anybody ever till I die. Can I promise them that? Um, but. Uh, yeah, I did try. I did call him after. We didn't get him the first time for contractual reasons, and then the second time, um, I did make contact with him on the phone, but uh, it was still very complicated. You mentioned there uh, that you wouldn't disclose the name of Mister Z from your book. I think it'd be wrong if I didn't ask the question. Was Mister Z Sir Bobby Robson? Exactly. <laughs> like, I know was not Sir Bobby Robson. No, was not Sir Bobby Robson. Lovely man, Superman. No. Was he ever spoken to at all about the Celtic job? No, what you have to understand is that my brief at the start was that nobody British was under consideration. He would not entertain any British, Fergus. Just forget it. Can we ask me first to a fancy? I gave him a couple of names that were British. He said, no, the British are out. No, I'm not even entertaining. Anyone British is out. Why was that, do you think? Um, he, he believed that uh, with the new system we're putting in place, the head coach and the general manager, uh, it was very common in Europe. Yeah. It was well known to work in Europe, um, especially in, in Italy, and, uh, and in Germany, and France, mm -hmm. Spain. We we're doing it everywhere, uh, except in the UK, and it had it was in disrepute in the UK. That whole system, uh, and he didn't think uh, that there would be a British person that would be able to do that do it now it's happening now all over the place yeah uh, Pep Guardiola is the best of all he's his head coach and uh, Arteta goes to Arsenal's head coach and they've all got people doing all the things I was doing uh, round about him 
Um, but in those days, uh, Fergus formed a view. I don't think he was right, by the way. I don't think he was right. Uh, I did tell him that. Um, I thought he was wrong. But he wouldn't consider anybody British. You played um, a big role in the next appointment, as we mentioned earlier, and Dr Joe Vengloss, and seen by many as a bold appointment, but having met Joe and, and understanding his um, multilingual side, was it an appointment that you didn't see as bold as the press tried to make out? Well, I didn't, but I, 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 don't, I don't read the press. I didn't read the press. I, st- I, I still don't read the press. Uh, I, I look at stuff online, but I don't, I don't buy a paper or whatever. So I don't know what they were saying at the time. I really don't know what they were saying about um, a bold appointment or a bold appointment. Um, my research indicated that it was a very strong appointment. Although it was, although it was going to be quite short term, we did know that because of his age and because uh, from his own perspective, um, it was it was going to be quite short term. Um, but uh, we thought he would bring to the club something that was of substantial value. And we also were intent at that time uh, with him in creating a succession. Uh, very clear ideas about bringing who, who would come after. You know, we're thinking, thinking longer term. Um, and uh, we thought he was a, a very strong guy too. Um, and, and by the way, one of the factors that, that brought Joseph Engloss to the party was Gerard Hulier. That's, that's something that I didn't actually know myself. No, nobody knows that. Gerard Hulier, when I met him, um, he said that uh, the most impressive coach that influenced him had been Joseph Engloss. And in fact, he said, what he did in Czechoslovakia, I copied for France. <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, and he said, uh, you should think seriously about Joseph Engloss. It wasn't the first time his name had been mentioned to me, but it was, it was, a, a, but, um, it was in my head at the time. And uh, Gerard Hooley, he was, was, I mean, he was, he was all, I'm almost calling him a mentor to him. You know, that was, yep. that, was that level. I thought, gee, you know, that's, that's powerful. Uh, and then I mentioned his name to my brother and he said, oh, gee, just fantastic guy, great coach, great guy, you know, in every way. He knew him from the European Coaching Convention. I think Joseph's currently president, he's vice president. I know. But, uh, but that was another big indication. And then Fergus made some inquiries too of Aston Villa, where he'd been, um, and got a swinging endorsement from them. Um, so uh, it came with a lot of a lot of uh, pluses. And he also told me when I spoke to him first up um, in Vienna, uh, he said, I've been looking at your squad, he said, you've got 10 players at the World Cup. I says, great. He says, that means you won't have a team performing until November. And he said, these 10, we have to find a way of giving them a three week break in, in a rotation, you know, pick three at a time. They need to get three because they, they, they can't pot. I can tell you, guys coming back from the World Cup have a period of time when they, they can't deliver uh, the way they normally would. Um, and it'll take till about November to get these guys functioning. 
so he said it about very tough start the season. Um, and I remember shortly after that, I got a call from Tom Boyd, who was with the Scotland team, you know, and we'd agreed a time for them to come back, a later time to come back for pre season. Uh, and he called me and said, Let's well, just let you know, I'm struggling, you know, I really need a break. And I talked to the boys, and we really are, can we postpone it even longer to come back? And Boyd's a first class guy in every respect. And, Totally honourable guy, um, uh, and and uh, we had, we didn't have a head coach in place, so he's talking to me really. So I, and I'm saying, and, and I, I I then spoke to Eric Black, who was head of youth. Um, and I said to him, but, but uh, boy, Tom Boy the phone, says, you'll be right. Give him a bit more. And we did give him a bit longer before they came back. Um, but just it was the mental energy, not just yep. the emotional and mental energy. I mean, if you go there and play against Brazil and France and Paris and the game, and then you get all that, it's a huge emotional strain on a player. Um, so, I, 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 you may recall, probably the best football Celtic have played in the last 25 years was from November to March that year under Joseph Inglis when we got them all fit, back functioning. And and some played some fantastic football in that period. Two players I'm interested to ask about in particular because you played a role in bringing him to the club. First of all, the signing of Henrik Larsson. Um, how complicated was that deal to conclude? And be honest, did you have any reservations at the time before signing Henrik? None, none at all. No, no, I didn't have any reservations. I'd seen him play. I'd seen him play. I commentated on playing for for uh, Sweden. Um, and I also knew that his reputation in Europe was high. So I had no qualms about that. I mean, the money was nothing. I mean, it was <laughs> pennies. Bargain of this dissension. Uh, um, uh, the big sweat I had was that, that he was, there was a big dispute. His agent was, his agent um, and the piano were at odds, serious odds, uh, because he had negotiated a buyout clause and the club were saying it wasn't valid. Uh, and they went to a tribunal in, in, in Amsterdam to fight it. Uh, and I got to know all of that. Uh, and I got all the papers to do with it. I got all the, I got all the information about the tribunal and about the, uh, I got it all translated. And then I had to t tell the Celtic board who I thought would win, using the legal hat, um, because that would have influenced us perhaps going and saying pay a bit more to get them because that's what they wanted they just wanted more money um, or we sit tight for the tribunal outcome in which case we get them for that peanuts um, and I assessed all the legal papers and came to the conclusion that uh, Larson would win uh, we should sit tight and of course that means I'm getting battered because the press are hounded all the time why is this what's delaying this what's the delay here you know uh, and the delay was simply making sure we paid the lower amount of money, basically, which meant the budget was able to be spread elsewhere and we could bring in other players. Uh, and that's what happened eventually. Do you look back on the signing of Henrik Larson as one of your proudest achievements in your career? Um, yes, I do, because it was so complicated, because the agent was also acting for Pierre Van Hoydonk and started off by saying, I won't talk to Celtic, because he'd fallen out so badly with Fergus and the Celtic Football Club. 
So I had to use the diplomatic skills learned in Darkest Larisha to <laughs> overcome that. Um, and uh, uh, that, was a, that was a major hurdle. Um, and uh, from that point of view, I'm, uh, I'm very happy about that, yeah. That leads me on to another player from, from Europe who you signed during your time at the club and a player who was absolutely ridiculed by the media and a player who definitely shut them up and proved them wrong and that player's Lobo Moravchik. Because of Dr Joe and the situation, was that a deal that was easy to conclude because of the, the similar nationality? Um, and did the press attitude annoy you or did you just laugh in the background going, I know he's going to prove you wrong? I think it amused me. That amused me because uh, uh, Joseph had told me, he said that uh, once you have bedded and settled and all that, look, and I looked at him and I said, I remember saying to him, right, what's, come on, what do you think? What, uh, tell us about the squad. He said, that's not a bad squad, it's a good squad. He said, but, but he said, a great squad has got three players who can deliver the surprising moment. A good squad has got two. You've only got one, Arson. We have another player who can deliver the surprising moment. I said, well, give me a clue. And he said, well, he says, well, there's one possible, he says, but, but he's old and, he's, and we can't sign him. We couldn't sign him. I said, well, what are you talking about? What's the problem here? He says, the guy called Lubomir Moravchik. And I'd never heard of him and I was quite disappointed in myself because my knowledge of European football is really quite good from all my commentating. You know, I've got a good grasp of Europe. I said, what are you talking he now plays for Duisburg in the Bundesliga, he says, but he's only been there a few months. He said he was at uh, St Etienne for about eight seasons and he was they were fighting relegation all the time, but he was he was there and he was at Bastia before that, but he's never been a big club. But he says uh, he was a wonderful footballer. But he says he's now thirty three years old, so I have no idea what his legs are like in the world. So I said, Well, why don't you go and see him? And he said, hey, I'll, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll make some inquiries. So he, he, back later, he said, he's not happy at Duisburg. He wants out of Duisburg. They're playing him in the Paul Lambert role in front of the two centre halves. Ridiculous. You know, he's <laughs> not happy. And, you know, it's in the coaching here at Loggerheads. So he's, he's not happy there. Um, but he said, but we can't sign him. He says, you'll, you'll get slaughtered if we sign up. We'll get slaughtered if we sign him. I said, I don't care. We'll get slaughtered if he's going to make our team better. It doesn't matter. All that matters is we make our team better. He says, if his legs still work, we'll make our team better. Could he deliver a surprising moment? I said, right, okay. Then let's go and see him. I went to Bratislava. And off he went down to Captain Slovakia against Portugal with all our great players. Um, terrible night. And uh, he was magnificent, magnificent. Fifteen minutes in, I'm saying, I'm, I'm holding Joseph's forearm, saying, Joseph, you've got to sign him. Just wait a minute, Let's see what he's like in the last fifteen minutes. <laughs> see the legs still work, you know? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, then begin, and we decided we've got to get him. And in terms of when you were in for Lugo, considering uh, Joseph's similar nationality was that a very easy deal to conclude and was he delighted to get the chance to join a club like Celtic when I first met him with Joseph uh, I had some German you see he had no English at all that word and I, I've got some German so he, he, he was quite fluent in German so in German I said to him how do you feel about playing for Celtic I'm not really interested he said 
believe our Bengals. That's what you said, I believe our Bengals. <laughs> That's brilliant. I said, well, Bengals is Celtic. He said, in that case, I believe our Celtic. Since what a, what a stroke of luck in terms of the fact we had Zenglos at the time, that Celtic had Zenglos at the time, because... Absolutely. And I drove, he drove me from Jewsburg to halfway through the deal to Dusseldorf to get a flight. And he said to me in German, I go into the car, I start to learn English now. You, <laughs> you teach me English now. So with the driving, I was in this car from Dusseldorf, and I'm saying, that's a tree, and that's a bus, and that's a car. And, all, <laughs> quite early, and he was repeating me with a Scottish accent. <laughs> He's a lovely, lovely man. Lovely. And I came back, to that and you know, no one had heard of him, no one knew about him. And he was uh, Celtic sign Dud Check. I was told the back page of one of the tabloids said, everything wrong about that. He wasn't a check, he wasn't a dud. Um, the only thing was right was to sign them, thank goodness. What a player he was, absolutely. And Fantastic. I'd like to go back to the 10 in a row season. Obviously, there was a famous bond between the players, the smell of the glove season. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it was portrayed that there wasn't that same bond behind the scenes? Well, it wasn't. <laughs> simple. There wasn't that same bond behind the scenes. Um, and, and that was, in my opinion, down to one man, but that's my perception of it. Uh, but again, I, I, I repeat, I have no, no beef at all with Remy Hansen. I, I, I liked Remy Hansen, I liked him then, and I have no reason not to like him now. I'd like to ask a question about Fergus McCann. What was Fergus like to work under, and what was he like personally with yourself? Straight as a die. Matter of fact, no fuss, no frills. Call it the way it is. Uh, no circumlocution, just say it uh, for real. Up for an argument, wanted to be challenged, was challenged. Um, sometimes the challenge is successful, sometimes it wasn't. Um, I've got huge admiration for him. Huge admiration for him. Obviously, I'm not going to get the name of Mr. Z out of you. You've promised that to the day you die, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to be daft enough to ask that. But what I would like to know is, without mentioning the person who it is, if Celtic were to have got him as manager, were you confident that he would have been an overwhelming success? Well, I, I think so. I, I do things. Uh, I think he'd live for a while. I think he'd be quite a long time. Um, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> I, uh, everyone's a gamble. There's no, there's no saying uh, for sure. Um, but uh, all the research I had done indicated that um, yeah, he'd been, he'd been good. Looking back on your time at Celtic, obviously you've written about five hundred and ten days at Celtic. Do you have any regrets looking back? Oh yeah, of course. Oh yeah, of course. I regrets. I mean. I tell you one thing I don't regret is the fact that every decision I made during my time at Celtic was made in the interest of Celtic Football Club. I made no decision in my own interests, uh, and I don't. That that is correct. The correct way to function. And even as I was making decisions that were in the interest of Celtic, I frequently knew that I was going to get slaughtered. And I still was prepared to do that because I was getting paid by Celtic to do a job at Celtic. 
and I wanted to do it the best of my ability, and I did it the best of my ability. And I, I have no qualms about that at all. Some decisions I've made. Recruiting Mother McLeod, huge mistake. Um, allowing the, the contract, accepting the contract with, a, with the term about being in front of the face of the club for the press, that was, a, I regret that. Because uh, that was the thing that was guaranteed to shorten my lifespan. And, and that was one element. And I didn't want a short lifespan there. I wasn't, that wasn't my, my intention when I went. Uh, I knew it would be a short stop. Shortly after I was there, I knew it wouldn't last long. But uh, when I first was going to take it on board, I was hoping it might last longer. So yeah, there were some decisions you make. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. But, but I made some great decisions. I mean, I, I mean, I, Eric Black was a great decision. Um, uh, some of the some of the recruitment was very very good. Not just for Eric, others. Kenny McDowell was a great. Excellent, Tom and Neil, good guys, excellent guys. Uh, so from that point of view, um, no, you look back, of course, and I, and I also regret the fact that I, I wasn't clever enough. Uh, I didn't I didn't realise how bad the press would be, um, and I wasn't clever enough at a press conference to deal with that because I did get. I, I mean, some of the stuff that was presented to you at a press conference was incredible, and, you, and it was very hard not to sort of say, what are you, what are you on about? You know, you, you can't do that. You've got to be much more diplomatic. Yep. My brother's a master at it, and I should learn from him better. Um, so, yeah. But, but the fundamental thing I, I don't have any regrets about, and that's vital, is that I was totally true to myself in terms of doing the job and the interest of that football club. Um, and I, I have no qualms about that at all. You mentioned there, obviously, regrets in terms of being put in front of the media. So often when, as you say, they don't access the head coach, and I'd like to stick on the media on this, maybe as a controversial question, but I, I want to ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Many people who support Celtic are big on so-called Celtic men or Celtic-minded people running and managing the club, and the media probably play up, certain elements in the media play up to that um, element as well. Did that attitude ever deeply frustrate you? I wouldn't say deeply frustrated me. I think it's wrong. I think it makes a big mistake. I mean, geez, you know, I don't think Gordon Strachan got the credit he deserved. Yeah. Uh, Gordon Strachan did a fantastic job. I mean, just fantastic job. What he had to do in terms of budget slashing and and still keep the team money and, and off to a terrible start and all that stuff. And he didn't really get the credit he deserved from anybody. Um, and that perhaps is because of his background we had no allegiance to Celtic anywhere. Um, and that, that's just silly. I mean, it really is silly. I mean, allegiance to Alec Ferguson up to Manchester United before he went there. Like none. Um, uh, no, that, that's a very short-sighted, very short-sighted view. But of course in Glasgow in particular, it's also conditioned a bit by the sectarian bigotry thing. I mean, that, that, that is there. You can't hide from that. I mean, one of my issues without question was the fact my brother played for Rangers, for goodness sake, you know. And that's quite well known. So I'm going there to sell that my brother played for Rangers. That means I, I am not, I'm a non-Catholic for a start. Um, and uh, I might have an allegiance to Rangers. And they've spent forever trying to find people that would say I wore a Rangers scarf or I went to Highbrooks and watched games and things like that. 
which they couldn't do. You know, in fact, our press office was concerned and said, but is there any possibility they can find anything? He said, absolutely none. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> There's not a slightest possibility. I was brought up in the house with my father, who was a professional player. Uh, he hated both Rangers and Celtic because he thought they got all the benefits of all the refereeing decisions and the kid played against them and he's always felt bitter about the fact they get all things going for them. And he had, he was he was celebrating when they both lost, which is unusual, but if they both lost, he was happy. So that's how I was brought up. I wasn't brought up to support either. Am I right in saying, obviously, when you were brought up, you attended Hamilton Ackies and that mm-hmm. was really the team that you had the scarves for, as, mm-hmm. you, as you said there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I still go. I still go. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was, aye, that was the only team. Well, I had one season I'd gone to Queen's Park, actually, when I was a small boy. My uncle, my favourite uncle, lovely man, was a big Queen's Park fan, and I was, he used to lift me over to Thunstall. And he lifted me over to Thunstall the season they were promoted into the first division. They won the championship in 1955-56. And I was lifted over at the home games in Hamden. You can tell your team now if you want to. <laughs> um and uh, but then um, but but once he wasn't doing that, was, his health wasn't too great, so he wasn't able to continue doing that. Then I was at Dallas Park, no snackies. Looking back on your time at Celtic, what are your best memories? Um, May two, nineteen ninety eight. Um, Harold brought back second goal. <laughs> um, I would say it was that was that was one. Um. Uh, also, I've got to say, the signings, you mentioned uh, Henrik Larsson and Lugo Moravcic. I'll tell you another fantastic signing. Jonathan Gould. Massively underrated. What a job he did. That 10 row season. Yep. What a job he did. Um, and he was, he's right from outer field, right out of the blue he came. Um, uh, and I'm really, really chuffed a bit with that signing because that was that, that was down to me. There was, you know, I was the one that went to Janssen McLeod and Hay and said, what would Jonathan Gould for a goalie? Hmm, that was not a bad idea. Right, see if we can get it. In terms of yourself, Joe, why... When was the point where you felt was enough was enough and you just had to you had to leave your role as general manager? Well, I said to Fergus in September, uh, start of the second season. Um, we started the start, didn't start the season very well. Things weren't too good, and we went to uh, with a with an annual general meeting. I had to, I had to do a football report at uh, AGM Celtic Park, three thousand people ever, um, and uh, I gave this report and the report consisted of me saying things like um, uh, season on the fields were pretty successful we've, we've won the, for, the league cup the first time in 15 years we've won the league for the first time in 10 uh, we've got a, a, a squad um, uh, of uh, 16 international players uh, we've got uh, we made a profit of 7 million quid uh, and uh, we've got these funds available to invest in the club going forward. Uh, <laughs> I got a bad reception. And I'm thinking, what, what was I supposed to do? What was the delivery supposed to be? You know, that, that didn't work out. 
Uh, and after that, I said to Fergus, that was September, I'm sure, uh, I said to him, time for me to go. Uh, we had a long conversation and he persuaded me it wasn't the time to go. Um, no, 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 it's, you know. Absolutely. If, 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 you're, if you're producing a, a year of that kind, that sort of level of success, I said, then you're getting booed when you unfurl the lead flag for the first time in ten. Sam, this is not a place for me. I think I need to go. Uh, and he, he persuaded me that, that wasn't the case. Um, but by November, it was a one day clear. You know, it wasn't workable. Do you still keep in contact with anyone from your Celtic spell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still, uh, yes. Well, Fergus, obviously. And I uh, played golf with him. I played golf with David Kells, who's a commercial director. I've, uh, I see regularly Jack Mulk. My head the club doc. Um, I've talked to players. I've talked to Paul Lambert recently. I've talked to Darren Jackson regularly. I've talked to uh, Simon Donnelly, Jackie McNamara, uh, the Scottish guys uh, that are here. Um, and uh, I would, I'm happy to say I think the relationships are good. In terms of working in Scottish football with, obviously you worked with Celtic, various other high-profile people have worked with Rangers in similar roles throughout the years. Two questions I'm interested to ask. How tough is it battling the media in terms of trying to keep the club's media relations strong? And how tough is it to also manage the politics of the role that comes with a general manager, director of football type role? Oh, that's difficult, yeah. I mean, I, I, another name I mentioned I'm still in touch with, a happily good friend, uh, Peter McLean, who was a PR guy, the press man at uh, Excellent. Uh, an excellent job in my opinion um, and a good man um, and his job was very very difficult really difficult uh, trying to, and of course I w- the social media thing hadn't kicked in the way it is now when I was there you know that it would, it would, I, mean, I can't imagine what it's like now social media doing what it's doing uh, because it was just it was just media press Principally, yeah. and, and some broadcast stuff that 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 you're having to contend with, um, so that, that is massively uh, difficult. It takes up too much time, honestly. You know, it is. If, if Peter McLean, uh, PR, he gave me this wonderful start. Uh, the time I was there, I've used in many instances since. In the year July ninety six to July ninety seven. Arguably the most famous woman in the world was Princess Diana. In the British press in that period there were 5,000 stories about her. There were 8,500 about Celtic. That sums it up. So that phenomenal thing, you know, the interested level. And it's got to be respected as well. And that's why one of the things, one of the tasks I think the club consistently has is to be the force for good that it's capable of being in society. Because it can be. It's a wonderful club. It's a great club. I mean, I had no idea how great it was, really, until I got into the middle of it all. It's a great, great club. And it's got a terrific capacity to influence Scottish society positively. And it must strive to do that. Moving up to the modern day, where people are in those roles, Nick Hammond is in the role at Celtic now, director of football. Ross Wilson's in the role at Rangers, director of football. What advice would you give to anyone in the game 
undertaking a role similar to the one you had at Celtic? Oh, it's simple. Just be true to yourself. Basically, that's it. Be true to yourself. Um, and not be influenced in, by external pressures, well, which there are so many. Looking back on your time at Celtic, one last question before we move on to around the quickfire questions. Was there ever a particular player um, who you thought you had and are just devastated or gutted that you didn't get in the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Gianluca Vialli. Was it a, was was that a deal that was potentially close? It was there. It was there. But I couldn't get it sanctioned at board level. Is that a deal that would have broken the club transfer record or No. No. No, I remember he was very old, he was thirty three. He was thirty three years old. He was at Chelsea. Yep. He'd fallen out with Rude Hullet. Um, and I was so keen to get him and the deal was there I had the deal with the deal I put the deal on the board to Pergus and uh, I couldn't get him to it it's quite a lot of money and he was an old guy and all that and I get that but I, I was arguing this, no this is a pipe piper we're getting this is a guy that'll transform the whole club in terms of player approach young players it'll do what Cantona did to Manchester United you know, in terms of Beckham and schools and all these guys yeah. looking at this guy and saying, this is what you need to be, do to be a top player. You know, Bialy's work ethic was sensational. I knew that inside out. I knew all about him, everything about him. Because he was a, a very rich young boy who decided to become the best player he could possibly be and work his tail off to be that. Didn't need to do it. He had plenty of money. Family money was solid. Um, and uh, he was an absolute example of exactly what you want in a football club um, I, I wanted him there for that and I wanted him there I saw him as a potential manager um, in the fullness of time move on to the quick fire round of questions now first question is how shocked were you when you'd left the club that Celtic then went down the route of appointing a British manager and the rookie manager John Barnes that was a shock at all because the regime changed and your regime had do what they want to do, you know. Um, what's your view on the current Celtic team and regime at the moment? Uh, well, the team's all right. Um, uh, the regime, I don't know much about the regime, but I, can't, but I would say they've clearly handled the finances very well, which is a very key part of all, and there's no question that uh, they've done that extremely well. Other aspects of it, I really couldn't say much about. I don't know an awful lot about uh, the team and the pitch. Uh, I think I think that uh, the team would have beaten them, <laughs> but uh, uh, but it's a good team and it's the best team in the country. I think, and well, it's proved to be. In terms of your view on the Scottish game in general, obviously, you mentioned there that you still attend Hamilton Aki's games. Mm-hmm. What do you? How do you view the state of playing Scottish football now as a whole? Uh, I'm not too depressed about it. I don't think it's too bad. I I, I think. Uh, I, I, I think there's a fitness level and a preparation level and a coaching level it's way ahead of what it was years ago uh, I think right I mean I'm talking about going right right down the leagues I mean I've watched some some lower league stuff um, and I, I think uh, 
it's in pretty good shape in that sense. I don't like, I do not like the system now about academies in terms of the way young kids are, are put into blazers and, and tracksuits and things and travel halfway across the country three nights a week when they should be practicing with their pals locally. I don't like that system. But I do think uh, in terms of the structure and the way the teams try to play and the coaching and all that, I think, I think we've come on quite a bit. I think the natural talent is not quite what it may have been in the past. Um, and that's perhaps down to what I'm saying about kids not playing enough. I think you train too much and don't play enough. And I'm looking at grandchildren, you know, and saying, oh, keep going to train. I said, I mean, train, just play. I mean, <laughs> just play. I, when I was a kid, just played all the time. Um, but there seems to be this thing about training, you know. And, uh, I mean, you can't train better than play. And you play, you learn everything, don't you? you Absolutely. You get your fitness up and you get your touch and you get your skills and all that. Um, but I do think that um, that a lot we've got a lot of good coaches about. I do think we have. Uh, I think teams are put together very cleverly, and uh, uh, because if you look at the golf, if you take if you take a, a situation, you'll find if say Kilmarnock play Rangers, the chances are there will be a Rangers player who earns more than the entire Kilmarnock team. Yep. But Kamala still beat them from time to time. And that's healthy. I spoke to your brother Craig about this very recently and I'm interested to get your view. One of Craig's points in the state of play Scottish football was he looked at Iceland as a country mm-hmm. and the number of indoor facilities that they've invested in. Would you concur that that's something in Scotland we do not do anywhere near enough Absolutely, of? 100%. Well, if you be fair to Craig, Craig, I know, argued with Jim Farry when he was chief executive of the SFA about spending fortunes in Hamden. And he said, don't spend the money in Hamden. Spend it and build 50 indoor pitches across the country. We've only got, what, Toll Cross and Raven's Craig. Is that it now? That's Toll Cross, not Toll Cross. Tory Glen, rather. Tory Glen and, and, uh, uh, and Raven's Craig, which are great facilities, both of them. Uh, but I don't... But, I mean, in, in Norway and in Iceland, they've got about 50 of them. Exactly. So the bad weather, when you get get out of the other, the other things, the way the whole world has changed, you can't actually let kids go anywhere on their own either. You know, you, you can't have them finishing training at nine o'clock at night and making their own way home. So somebody's got to pick them up, lift and lay them and all that sort of thing from where they go right now. But in an indoor situation, you can find more security, less to worry about in that sense. Uh, and uh, you could play all the time. You know the training will be on and the game will be on. And you're indoor. It's, it, it is absolutely essential for us to do that. In terms of your time in the business side of football, who's been the hardest footballer or hardest footballers to have to negotiate with? Well, you can't. It was impossible. So that's, that's, that's the worst. Um, but I would say the hardest footballer to negotiate with is one who is represented by somebody who is not operating in the player's best interests. And from your point of view, is that something back when you were involved in football that happened far more than it ever should have? I think then and now it happens far more than it should have. I think, I think, I think if, you're, if a player chooses his representation largely, I'm not against agents at all, but um, the agent has got to be concerned about the player. And focus on a player and not on himself. A question I'm fascinated to ask from my own personal point of view, but also I think a lot of football fans would be interested in this. 
what is involved in a transfer that us as fans maybe aren't aware of? Because we pick up the newspapers or we read Sky Sports and you know what it's like from your time at Celtic, even in the 90s, it's, oh, we're linked with him. How can the club not just get that done very quickly? As you say, with the Larson situation, what's actually involved that we're not aware of? I mean, multitudes of things. Um, I mean, I had one deal with a very prominent player. We got him. Um, but we might not have got him. Um, because he was coming from abroad and uh, uh, he had animals that had to go into quarantine. <laughs> and didn't realise that. And I was, I was actually abroad phoning back to Peter McLean, press guy, Peter, <laughs> where, where can you quarantine animals before Glasgow? Where the... What are you talking about? I just like, you need to find out for <laughs> That sums up perfectly. The, play, the player's wife was sitting there and she was saying, oh, I'm really looking forward to coming to class I really had so much about it and I'm going to bring in the animals and all that. Was, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> no, no, it's not quite as simple as that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the face was... Quarantine, I'll find out where the quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right, that sums up perfectly. Last question, Joe, thanks for your time today. I want to ask you, what is your all time 11 from your time working in Scottish football with Celtic at general manager and as a broadcaster as well? No difficulty at all with that. That's absolutely easy. I'll just run it off the top of the head right now. That team is Jonathan Goulden Goal, a back four of Boyd, Reaper, Stubbs, and Mahe. A midfield four of McNamara, Burley, Lambert and Vekhorst. And a front two of Larson and Bratback. And I can give you 11 subs as well if you wanted it. And they'd all be in the Celtic squad that stopped in a row. Brilliant. Jock, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song Dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be